sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican factotum, Jay Carson. Good morning, Jay. And I should say, Jay uh, swooped in. I don't know if you swooped in, but essentially I was going to do the show with Kristen this week, but she came down with a bad bad cold that I guess turned into bronchitis and she was just not in a good way and she was willing to go on and do it but I told her you know get your rest and called up Jay and at literally 10 minutes notice Jay said absolutely I'm ready to go so thank you ready Jay. to step in to to save America That's, yeah Mike I was as 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 you know most Republicans like me at this time of year I was going to be uh washing my yacht uh, yeah, this figured. morning yeah. but I was almost on my way to do that but uh, then uh, duty calls. So I, I, here I am. That that's that that is the kind of just spirit that yeah that absolutely just wonderful. But yeah, another thing I wanted to mention before we get started is you know normally when you and I are doing the show, Jay, uh, about halfway through, I take a minute to thank our newest Patreon supporters and and ask people maybe if they want to consider being supporters. And you know. I was awfully nice of you. You know, I I was thinking about that, and I've listened to a lot of podcasts, and I realized if someone broke up a show I was listening to to do that, I would feel mildly annoyed, or maybe a little more, because that's actually happened, and that's how I felt. And so I thought, why don't I not do that? Instead, why don't I just thank folks at the beginning, make any announcements we need to make, and then that way people can just enjoy the show all the way through. So that sound good to you, Jay? That sounds fine to me. Well, then that's what we're going to do. And so we do want to thank our newest Patreon monthly supporter, and that is Robert. Robert, thank you so much. And, and of course, when you become a monthly supporter of the show through Patreon, you know, you get our thanks, but you also get access to a bunch of stuff, our weekly bonus show and a number of other things that we put together. In fact, Jay, there's a new thing that I'm kind of excited to, to tell folks about, and this is going to be available to all Patreon supporters. So I'm a big fan of, of movies, all kinds of movies. And now you, you are too, Jay, right? Absolutely. Yes. So uh, on Tuesday, in a couple of days here, I'm actually starting a new class, teaching a new class at NKU called Dystopian Politics in Film. And I thought, you know, why don't I try to kind of bring as much as I can of this experience to some of the supporters, because every week I was going to talk about a couple of films and uh, uh, put some questions up for people to talk about. And I thought, you know, maybe supporters might enjoy doing that. So I'm going to start. Fun. Yeah. yeah. And so, folks, if you're interested, I should let, I guess I should let people know what the films are. Right. That might be helpful. So this coming week, uh, we're going to be talking about Planet of the Apes, the original one from 68, and Escape from New York, one of my all-time favorite movies. I, I, I love that movie. Um, that's going to be followed by Blade Runner, RoboCop, The Matrix, V for Vendetta, Idiocracy, and Snowpiercer. So if you're interested in hearing my comments on all of those films and also maybe getting involved in some discussions, you can do that by going to our Patreon page. It's uh, it's uh, patreon.com slash politics guys. And if you are a supporter, the audio commentary will be right there in your supporter RSS feed. And, uh, you know, I hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, with that out of the way, we are ready to get on with the show. You ready, Jay? I'm ready. All right. Well, let's do it. So we start today with the latest in Trump investigations, including 
Attorney General William Barr's investigation of the investigators. Now, the Trump strategy, Jay, as you and I have talked about last week, is basically been to fight essentially all these information requests. Uh, and legally, it doesn't really seem all that promising, that argument that, you know, the administration can refuse to turn over documents or to prevent the president's bankers or accountants from providing them when the administration decides it's not related to a legitimate legislative purpose. That that really goes against a large body of precedent. And, sure. you know, and of course, most legal experts, even on, on the right, don't really expect the administration to have a lot of success ultimately, again, legally with these arguments. Um, Jay, and you would you would more or less agree with that, right? Yeah, I, I do to an extent. And I guess it, okay. it depends on which investigations and which requests we're talking. Yeah, there are about, a lot of them. Think, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think we've we've discussed before the idea of uh, Congress getting the president's tax returns. Um, I, you know, look at the way I read the statute. Uh, I think it's an incredibly dumb law. It may even have been a bill of attainder at the time. Um, but uh, I, I mean, the statute gives the the uh, right to the uh, House Finance Committee to um, get the tax returns of, of any person uh, it, it sees fit. Um, and I, I think that's a, a tough, uh, you know, I'm not sure how you how you get around that that statute. Um, uh, some of the others, uh, as you mentioned, that you know, is it a proper subpoena? Uh, uh, well, again, there's going to be sort of a um, wide strike zone that the courts are going to get give to that um uh as far as you know proper legislative purpose yeah um so so those are but but when you get into the other some of the other issues um for example testimonial privilege uh who has to show up and testify who can be uh subpoenaed to appear and you get into things like uh, executive privilege i think the president has a stronger case uh in a lot of in a mm -hmm. lot of those requests you know and there's one argument that Actually, the I think I mean I think that Congress's case is already pretty strong, but one way almost certainly to strengthen it would be to start a formal impeachment inquiry, which is different. And, and I think people kind of get these terms kind of confused. But an impeachment inquiry is not actually impeachment. It's simply that the House would vote to have well an inquiry into impeachment made by the Judiciary Committee, and that can be done without actually voting to impeach the president. Right. And what, do, what do you think? What do you think they'll find if they do that inquiry? Well, well my point is, what do you think come up? With? Well, my, my my point is from a from a legal standpoint. Yeah. When you're talking about a legitimate legislative purpose, one of the administration's arguments has been is that there's no way that, or they don't see how Congress could legislate on this. Now, that argument totally falls apart when you're talking about, uh, when, when you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, actually considering impeaching the president. Right. No, because, the, the, the question is, yeah, give us, give me a good reason why you need this stuff. Exactly. Other than just hassle, hassling me. Yeah. And I think um, there's already a good and, enough and, reason, but this makes it much stronger. Yeah. No, I, I would agree with you. If they were to, to begin um, impeachment proceedings, that would be a good reason. Uh, and uh, I think they would be able to do that. Yeah. Um, but, but I think but politically, that, but there's an obvious issue there. Yeah. Um, well, I think politically, yeah. the problem would be, and again, there's a difference between launching an inquiry and beginning impeachment and voting, you know, out of the Judiciary Committee to, to have the impeachment kind of process move forward. And, but yeah. I think that that distinction is going to get lost. Well, I think I think as a practical matter, um, 
once you've initiated the launch sequence, uh, you can't stop it. I, I, I disagree I think that's, with that. That's the issue that House Democrats, I think, are, are facing already. Yeah. Um, well, that, is, yeah, I see what you're saying. Well, that kind yeah, of I mean, gets I into think, the. I think you, you can't you can't uh, you can't say okay, we're going to have an impeachment investigation uh, and then uh, uh, decide not to impeach. Hmm. I I would think at least at least I'm, I'm, I don't I mean I mean politically not legally I obviously you can but but I'm just saying the the political pressure uh, would be tremendous, um, and just just because and again this is sort of the the dilemma Democrats are facing already that, um, uh, you know you sort of get up and and go through these are the the litany of the horrible things Donald Trump has done and shredding the Constitution and so forth. Um, and to which their base responds, well, what are we going to do about it? And, you know, that's 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 the issue. See, I, I, uh, I think I think there are some Democrats who who feel that way and who would vote to impeach no matter what. But I also think that there are a, a good number of Democrats like the sort of folks who, you know, one in kind of middle of the road districts who gave the Democrats their majority in the current Congress who would not be nearly as likely to do that because it wouldn't be, number one, I don't know if the evidence would support it necessarily, and that's obviously, it should be important. And number two, I don't know that it would be in their electoral best interest. So I think I disagree with you a little bit on on that issue. I think there might I've, be enough votes. I've, sa- I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Uh, the House will impeach Trump. Uh, all Democrats will vote for impeachment. Okay, and I I will take that bet because you are. Uh, <laughs> and, and again, it's and they not necessarily willingly, but I'm yeah. I, I really think it is sort of uh, the launch sequence has started, and I, I don't know how they can stop it at this point. Gotcha. All right. Well, I I completely disagree with you on that, but we will we will find out. I'm okay. sure. Okay. Watch as it keeps playing out. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, another part of this, you mentioned bill of attainder a little bit before, and uh, New York State's done something sort of interesting. The legislature passed. Uh, passed a bill that would essentially allow con- allow New York State to provide the state income tax returns of Donald Trump to specific congressional committees. Now, this was not written with Donald Trump's name <laughs> specifically involved. Right. It was written, you know, to include a wide kind Most of class. the tender are <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it would it would uh, you know apply to a large number of federal officials essentially. So it's not. A bill of attainder, but pretty clearly it was drawn up specifically to allow Congress to look at Donald Trump's New York state tax returns. And of course, since you know his businesses are in New York state, this would reveal not everything that was in his federal returns, but it certainly would be illuminating. And uh, well, I, I think it's, I think it, there's a, there's a good argument to say that it is a bill of attainder. Okay. And, and I would, I would expect it to be challenged. Um, uh, well, so what so is we'll that, see how that plays out. But, well, what is that argument, Jay? Well, the the the, the bill is <laughs> directed to um, one one single uh, person um, that it's it's seeking uh, to, to sort of harass for political reasons. But but if you apply kind of uh, I mean when we talk about other legislative actions and we talk about intent or we talk about the sure. say the intent of the president in doing something like immigration bans, I mean pretty much the standard is to give the benefit of the doubt. And as long as there's any kind of a rational basis for it, then it's okay. And so as long as it doesn't specifically single out the president, anything, and there's a legitimate legislative purpose for doing that more broadly, then I would think that there's, there's no reason why that's impermissible. 
Well, I'm I'm not saying I'm not saying uh, it's it's definitely a bill of attainder. Okay. I'm saying it's it's challengeable. Okay, yeah, and, and, and I would expect certainly. that it, it should be challenged. Yeah, and on, on that ground, and I would yeah, say it ought, I ought to be challenged. Yeah, and I I don't see any problem with that. I think it would lose, and it should. But yeah, absolutely. But, but I mean, because here's here's the 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 point. Here's the test. Because it's one of those. Um, Again, if you're writing, trying to write a bill of attainder, you're obviously not going to say this is a bill of attainder uh, to to uh, harass Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, it's so there's there's always some sort of you have to go beyond what that that sure. uh, the language says. And it's a little different um, bill of attainder than talking about something like immigration, which is a, um, you know, let's say, you know, the 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 travel ban. Um the argument was, well, this is just thinly veiled uh, uh, racism, uh, religious bigotry, something like that. Right. Um, as opposed to when you're looking at, you know, one one person. Yeah. Now they could say, well, the class of person people is is larger because it's it's uh, federal officials from New York, but um, they've got a. I mean, my my point is, I, I would make them the New York legislature and or the governor, whoever um, their attorney, essentially. Uh, walk in and say that with a straight face to the judge. Sure, and, and I, I think they could certainly. And, and the judge would look at them and say, "Come on." And I, see, I don't think the judge would say that. I think that you can make the case well, that there are... in New York. You may be, you may be right. <laughs> but well, no, I mean, I think uh, I think there are plenty the line, of. Well, I, I think there are plenty of you know uh, millionaires and billionaires with you know all sorts of interesting financial holdings where there certainly could be. Uh, legitimate legislative purpose for them to look at. Has Congress these, asked for any of their their records? But they, you know, they might. Donald Trump has certainly <laughs> set a precedent by, you know, not releasing his tax returns. And I think it's a legitimate concern to say, well, hey, now that other folks see that Trump didn't do it, it would be very easy for them, or it would be easier for them to say, you know what, I'm not going to do it either. It doesn't seem like I pay as much of a political price. And so I, I think this is a, a reasonable and prudent piece of legislation. Oh dear. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We will. I, 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 would, I would expect that they will challenge it. Um, you're, you're like, I think I tend to agree. You probably lose the district court level. Um, uh, but I think it would be overturned on appeal. Well, you know, and again, we're talking about these appeals, uh, as we talked about last week, it seems like right. the political the time, goal is yes. to stall until yeah. after yeah. November, 2020, essentially. Now, but, but then there was this weird situation where this week the president's attorneys and House Democrats reached this agreement for an expedited appellate review of the, uh, the of a subpoena for some of his financial documents for one of the firms. Uh, oral arguments now are scheduled for it's, uh, July 12th. And so mm -hmm. you can see where if this kind of gets bumped up and you have a decision where this could get a Supreme Court ruling sometime in maybe early to mid 2020 or so wouldn't be out of the question. So, I, but, you know, then, then again, I think on the other hand, it seems pretty clear to me that Donald Trump is goading the Democrats into impeaching. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and so maybe it's not so much stalling. It's just stonewalling to say, what are you going to do about it? And Hey, great. Impeach me. And, you know, it reminds me and, and, and this is this is maybe a, a, a racist story. So I, at least people I want to mention that. But the Br'er Rabbit stories, you know, <laughs> okay, Br'er yes. Rabbit and Tar Baby, that sort of thing. And again, I want to point out these stories. There was once an Ohio legislature legislator who who did, did something like that and told a whole Br'er Rabbit oh, story God. on the floor of the house. Wow. And and yes, we were sitting in the the, uh, the gallery and just the jaws drop. And, yeah. Um, now, so now, and again, this this was someone who is who is you know I would say I certainly. 
uh, had never experienced him as yeah. or, or as, as a racist. He just sort of told the story without without you know I yeah. guess getting some of the other underlying context. But yeah. go ahead. But no, I mean, and actually, with your well, well, I did some research on that, and I guess apparently it dates the kind of traditional African folk tales, but then it was appropriated by racists and so forth. But anyway, the point being is that, you know, the idea that you're just begging somebody to do this thing that you know is going to get them involved in a horrible mess that they can't get out of and it's going to be bad for them and good for you and, you know, that that kind of thing. And it just seems to me so obvious. And I got to say, I think that Nancy Pelosi has, you know, Donald Trump is right to respect her because I think she's done a great job of keeping the Democratic coalition together and kind of keeping them away from the impeachment talk. And that's why I'm a little more confident that it's not going to happen than than you are. I have more faith in Nancy Pelosi's abilities, I guess, than you do. Nancy's hanging on by her fingernails. I don't think so, but, <laughs> but, but, but we'll find out. So, uh, but no, what I, I think I think you're right, and, and I'll take off. You know, sometimes you have to look at these these issues from from two perspectives. One is, you know, kind of wearing the legal hat. Sure. Um, is this a you know, uh, uh, you know, enforceable subpoena? Is it you know that, all that sort of stuff? Yeah. Does he win or lose a court? Um, but the bigger picture is how does it play politically? And and my thought is, I think it plays fine for politically uh, politically yeah. for Trump. Yeah, I, um, I agree. I agree. Just entirely. because most most people, I I think, I mean, the the Democrat left very much uh, is concerned about Trump's tax returns. Um, most people aren't, uh, because again, we sort of we sort of had this argument already. Um, you know, release your tax returns. No, 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 and and he didn't, and he was elected. So I I, I think there's not much. Um, yeah, I, and I think I think as the Democrats keep focusing on, focusing on on this, it allows Trump the ability to say, "Look, uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to get something done uh, for our country. I want to solve these problems. They just want to investigate me." Sure. And and I think, the, yeah, I think the Democrats are walking right into it. Yeah, I think it's politically. I I totally agree. Even though I think there's good reason to have his tax returns, but you know, and that kind of. That kind of goes into, you mentioned, I want to do good things for the country. The Democrats are preventing me. That kind of gets into the whole infrastructure thing, right? So earlier, Donald Trump has this agreement in gauzy principle about this $2 trillion over 10-year infrastructure package. And this week, he, depending on who you want to talk about, storms out, throws a tantrum, whatever, uh, basically says, hey, as long as Democrats are doing this, you know, saying I'm engaged in a massive cover-up. I'm not going to work with them on infrastructure. Now, to me, it's pretty clear what's going on here. He made a promise that there was no way he could keep. This gave him a very convenient out because there was no way to pay for this infrastructure package. No way any of this was going to get through Congress. And so he took the political opportunity to back himself out of it. And, you know, that's what he did. What do you think? Agreed, agreed. Yeah. But but yeah, no, I, I I think that's right, and I think there would have been. Well, I mean, there there's there's also the argument though that I mean Trump has never necessarily really been a fiscal conservative. Um, sure. So if the argument is would would Trump have balked at spending uh, whatever it was trillion dollars on infrastructure? Right. Um, I don't think so. I th- I think uh, Republicans uh, in the Senate would have. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and that would be the the bigger issue. Um. But on 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 and to sort of the devil's advocate uh, or or Trump's advocate, I guess if you might say, um, <laughs> I mean, do, doesn't he have doesn't he have something of a point of uh, look? Why should I come out here and hold hands and sing kumbaya uh, when these guys or after two years of being investigated and the investigator said I don't see anything that I I'm going to press charges on? Um, you know, these folks are calling me a crook. 
Sure. And the Democrats would say, well, why don't you cooperate with our legitimate request for information? We think you're covering things up because we think you are a crook. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, and I, and yeah. And his response would be, look, I, um, my lawyers and, and everybody, I mean, sat down with, uh, Mueller and, and we had this two year process sure. and he said he wasn't denied anything that he needed. Um, so yeah, and I think, you know, uh, plenty of people on the left would say, yeah, you got your sort of uh, uh, Republican I- investigator and, you know, you got your very friendly attorney. Yeah, he's a Republican. Yeah, haven't you haven't you heard that? Um, well, you I know, I know he, he was at one time, but uh, but he's hardly a, he's hardly a flaming man of the left out to destroy Donald Trump. And and also, I think that Robert Mueller's uh, uh, conclusions, especially regarding obstruction, were, as we talked about in the past, have been incredibly dishonestly spun by the administration. And that's what Congress really wants to get get into. And that's what uh, the administration doesn't want them to get into, I would say. But then you get that kind of brings us a little far afield. The the other thing I wanted to get your thoughts on, Jay, is the ongoing investigation of the investigators. You know, um, this is headed by U.S. Attorney John Durham, and that's moving forward. This week, Donald Trump gave Barr the authority to declassify intelligence information that's relevant to the investigation. And he ordered the U.S. intelligence community to promptly cooperate with Barr. And uh, this, of course, a lot of folks on the left are upset about this. Uh, House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff called it un-American. Uh, well, what do you think about this, Jay? Well, I, I would think it's it, to ask the, the intelligence community to cooperate with the Justice Department investigation um, doesn't, doesn't seem to be uh, too shocking. I mean, does it? Uh, especially if, if this is a situation where the intelligence community might have uh, overstepped its bounds um, and, and, and wandered into uh, domestic political uh, affairs. Yeah, I, and I, I understand that argument. I, I, I said from the beginning that I'm, you know, I, I think that if you I don't have, the, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I, I think the, a lot of intelligence uh, uh, the intelligence community wasn't really happy about cooperating with the church commission back in the seventies sure. either and, for, and, for and some I, of those same reasons. Yeah. And I, I think that uh, as much transparency as is possible, uh, you know, keeping in mind that we need to protect sources and methods and other things. I think that's, sure. I think that's a good and a healthy thing, but just as Republicans were concerned about politicizing this entire process. Now, of course, Democrats are concerned about it. I'm one of them, but, but in principle, I have no quarrel with Barr's Dunham's, uh, Durham's investigation because I think that in the end, it's not going to re- result in indictments and findings that this was, you know, illegally or unethically done. I think it's going to, you know, not not show that at all. But again, I want to see what the facts show. I'm not I'm not wedded to any interpretation Good. just because of you know my team or the other team. Good. Good for you. And I would assume you're not you're not either, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So moving on, you know, uh, we haven't talked about Iran lately, but I think it's time that we should, because of course, tensions have been heating up really for the last few weeks in particular. The groups with ties to Iran have attacked shipping in the Persian Gulf. There was that rocket attack ne- uh, near the embassy in Baghdad. And even though Iran is denying those, you know, they're with proxy groups that are closely allied to them. And the intelligence community, which we were just speaking about, says there's been a pretty significant increase in credible threats to U.S. personnel in the region. And uh, mm-hmm. 
even though, I mean, there are some congressional Democrats in that you know, all Congress briefings, well, I think we're exaggerating the threat, basically, uh, and that it maybe it's a way to lay the groundwork for a potential preemptive strike. And they see that as more likely after, especially after the recent deployment of the Abraham Lincoln Carrier Strike Group into the area. And now there's uh, some talk that we're going to get more troops in the Middle East. In fact, I think recently there was an announcement about an increase of something like a thousand, fifteen hundred or something. Yeah. yeah. Now, to kind of give a greater context to this, of course, this all stems from the Trump administration's decision to withdraw from that multilateral Iran nuclear agreement, and that's a little more, I think, than a year ago, in which U.S. sanctions were lifted in exchange for Iran halting development of its nuclear weapons program. And independent inspectors found no Iranian violations of the agreement, but the Trump administration felt that it was, uh, in their words, a bad deal, or probably the, mo- mm-hmm. the worst deal ever, ever I don't know. Um, but, <laughs> right, but that more could be... A, deal. But essentially the argument is that more could be accomplished by squeezing Iran's economy. And there's no question, Jay, that this squeezing has definitely happened. Since the sanctions were put in place, Iran's oil exports have fallen by more than half. Inflation's shot up to 40%. The Iranian rial has lost around 60% of its value against the dollar. Their unemployment rate is over 12%. And there are estimates that their economy as a whole is going to shrink by somewhere around 6% this year. So they're in pretty dire straits. And in fact, the Iranian government recently announced that it's going to stop complying with parts of the agreement unless it receives relief from these sanctions. So that's kind of the strategy. What, what, do, you, uh, what do you think about it? I, I, I think it's, you know, if, if remember, we talked about this a year, or so, a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and I actually were, were in agreement that uh, our pulling out of the treaty was probably not going to uh, make any real changes in uh, to to Iran, um, and and the fear was, and I think both you and I shared it, uh, that even if if uh, we leveled sanctions, uh, our our European allies would not. Um, but that that really didn't happen. The Europeans did, uh, for the most part. I think have have cut off Iran and are are sort of honoring. Uh, you know, the path we're taking. Um, so I think the, the sanctions have had a, a bigger impact than uh, certainly either you or I would have expected. Um, and, and look, I, I'm, I'm in the camp that the, the Iranian uh, regime is uh, uh, despicable. They are the, you know, world's biggest sponsor, state sponsor of terror. Um, uh, I, I don't, don't find their leadership trustworthy. Uh, and, and I, I, I think this is, this is a problem that we deal with, uh, long-term, uh, and, and if, if there's a way that to accomplish some sort of regime change, uh, in Iran, um, or to get them back to the table, uh, uh, to get a, a better deal, I think that's, that's yeah. a good thing to do. There's also, there was an interesting, interesting report, um, a week or so ago, and I think this might've happened on a week that, that I wasn't, uh, doing the show, um. That so much, some of this, these, this Iranian um, saber rattling has come from their misreading that the U.S. was was planning an imminent attack. Um, yeah. And, and and again, I, I I wouldn't rule out that there might be military action at, at some point, but um, that there was, you know, we were not planning an imminent attack. At least as far as I know, not that 
you know, everyone shares these things yeah, with yeah. me, but um, that that I think they are there at this point and, you know, really struggling because of the sanctions. So they're sort of, you know, lashing out. Yeah. Well, you know, that's partly, I think that's one legitimate concern. You know, some of the uh, Iranians, especially the hardliners might say, hey, if this keeps up, we're just going to be in a weaker and weaker position. So maybe the thing to do is to fight back now, you know, ramp up our nuclear program. I mean, the estimates are it could take as little as a year. And so we could have a situation potentially where Iran, Iran just gears up for war and a year from now has a nuclear weapon or two. And all of a sudden we have a we have a truly disastrous situation. I mean, and of course, that was always the risk, one of the right. risks involved with this. But, you know, another point I want to make. Or if they just didn't comply with the treaty. Yeah, but they I mean, they had been complying with the treaty. So, you know, that, that's really that was that was the Obama administration's bet basically saying that, well, we'll keep them from getting the nukes and uh, we will gradually, they will gradually liberalize and so forth. That, that was a different logic, certainly. Yeah. But, you know, I also wonder, and this, I think it's a reasonable point to bring up about the long-term strategy, the strategy of basically trying to strangle someone's economy, uh, our country's economy into compliance. Now, it's pretty clear, and I think you would agree, that the people in charge in Iran are fully committed to anti-Americanism, and uh, basically a wholehearted rejection of most liberal Western values, right? That sounds like them, yeah. I mean, they cannot sustain themselves in power if they become friendly with the United States. It just, it seems almost inconceivable, right? Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, not not friendly, but yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering then, you know, when I think about our past attempts to try to use sanctions to get countries to do what they want. I think about, you know, it hasn't worked in Cuba or North Korea through, um, what, it's over half a century, well over half a century now. Um, It doesn't seem to be necessarily working all that well in Venezuela, though that's still a newer kind of thing. But, you know, I'm certainly there's good reason to be skeptical about this strategy. We've tried it in, like I said, Cuba and, sorry, Cuba and North Korea, probably the most high profile examples. And as long as there's somebody else willing to kind of prop them up, in this case, it would be, you know, Russia. uh, I think that the long term outlook is certainly not necessarily nearly as positive as a lot of people might think that we can somehow bring them to heal. Sounds like you're saying we should go ahead and bomb them. I'm definitely not saying that. I am not channeling John Bolton here. (laughs) I mean, you know, I think he's. No, I'm I'm joking, but I'm also raising sort of a a little bit of a serious point in that uh, when you're dealing with, with uh, bad actors in other States, you know, you, you sort of have only so many tools in the, yeah. the, the toolbox and, you know, there's diplomacy and there's, there's economic uh, sanctions and there's military action. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so if, I mean, and Trump has decided that diplomacy is just not an option that he wants to, that he wants to, you know, go with. Right. And that's the Obama. I don't know that diplomacy necessarily works with, you know, as as you as you pointed out, an Iranian, um, uh, sure, anti-Western, that, yeah. That, um, they're pretty much bent on on our destruction, and maybe diplomacy works to to the extent you can get some kind of leverage or pressure on them, and and there's two ways to do that, and one's economic, the other's military. Yeah, and well, and you know, some might argue that a better way to kind of deal with this is if you cut off their the support from their 
from their proxy, or not from their proxy, but from their from their main supporter, Russia. But of course, we have our own issues with Russia on that, and that's not going to happen. But it kind of comes back to, and you and I have talked about this before, people are looking for, I think, sometimes a, a magic bullet approach, and there just are not a lot of good approaches, because of course, in you know, diplomacy seems like a long shot. Uh, I think economic sanctions don't seem necessarily all that promising, given the current configuration. And also that idea of just kind of military invasion. I think one of our big lessons from, from uh, Iraq, which was a much simpler situation in so many ways, is that, boy, that can sure bring you a ton of unintended consequences. And so in this case, I think Donald Trump's instincts about not getting involved in military confrontations, you know, I think they're, they're, they're pretty good instincts on this. Okay. So anyway, we, we will see. All right. Moving on to our next story. You know, this week, 20 states filed suit against the Trump administration's so-called conscience rule, which gives, which gives health care providers, insurers, and employers who provide health insurance a greater ability to refuse to provide or to pay for medical services that they say violate their religious or moral beliefs. Now, the rule is set to take effect at the end of July, though it's almost certain, I'd say, that there's going to be an injunction blocking it from going to effect while it's being litigated. Now, the argument of the states is that the rule impermissibly favors the interests of providers and employers over patients particularly women and the LGBTQ community, and that it's going to result in significant discriminatory, ba- discriminatory barriers to access to some basic medical care. And this new rule goes further than just restoring the conscious objections to kind of back to where they were in the George W. Bush era, right. because it allows broader grounds for refusing service, and it also strengthens enforcement. Uh, Back in 2017, an executive order, President Trump created an Office of Conscience and Religious Freedom as part of the Health and Human Services Civil Rights Office. So clearly, there's much more of a focus on this. This has been kind of an issue, particularly of Vice President Pence. So uh, what do you you think about this new uh, conscience rule, Jay? I I guess I don't understand why... uh... Well, first, first of all, let's let's look at it from the the legal aspect. Sure. Um, I think it's going to be hard to make a showing uh, that that there is this really this irreparable harm is going to occur. Um, that doesn't mean the district court won't grant an injunction, but I I, I I'm not sure that that there's a showing that that medical services would be unavailable to people because of because of this. I think that's just a really sort of sort of far fetched kind of uh, kind of argument. Um, and I also look, I mean, I, the conscience clause, I think, is, is important if you want. I mean, because because you're you're not in any way an abortion extremist. Right. Um, and I think you could agree you there could be someone who wants to go into the, the health care field because, look, we want to help people. We want to save lives. Sure. Uh, but they view uh, abortion as the taking of a human life. And and they don't want to be put in a position of, look, you can only. You can only serve people, and you can only do these other life-saving things if you agree that you will also perform uh, these uh, these services, which you you sure. believe are, are morally abhorrent. I I don't think that's. Um, well, let me let me give you a for instance, maybe, and I think this might help to bring it into I, I don't know a little more of a, a real world context, maybe not, but you know, let's say that there's a uh, there's there's a woman in in Cincinnati where, where I'm from, you know, who. Mm-hmm. 
who wants to get the the plan B morning after pill, right? Okay. And so now if she's if she's living in in my community, well, she goes to the Walgreens right by my house, and uh, the pharmacist says, "Sorry, I can't." I can't dispense that. It's against my religious beliefs. And she can go to a Walgreens two minutes away, literally, and right. just get it from that or from another pharmacist at that Walgreens. So, right. you know, that's not really that much of, I'll use the words undue burden, which is kind of the test that, you know, the court used in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So, okay, but let's say you're talking about a small town, you know, a tiny little community, which maybe only has one pharmacy, one pharmacist, and all of a sudden, this woman is in a very different situation and there is a much greater burden put upon her access to, you know, that, that prescription or, you know, it could be other healthcare services as well. And so mm-hmm. I think it's a, it can be a difficult question. So I understand that I am not unsympathetic to the conscious of the legitimate conscious objections of people, but that balance is, it is a tricky one. And I think probably that the Trump administration airs I agree that the Trump administration probably airs too much on the side of, you know, the folks who have the conscience objections. Yeah, I, I guess my my point is in, in the real world and the, the example you gave, um, if you have uh, a lot of, um, you know, or whatever, if, if 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 the service is hard to find uh, in a certain place, um, the market will step in and, and find a way to fill it, to fill it. Right. If, if the, if the, if the need is going unmet, uh, the market will step in. Oh, I, I totally disagree with that. At least in these instances, because it wouldn't necessarily be, I mean, it's just like how there are so many people with those what are called orphan drug syndromes, right. Where mm-hmm. basically there's not a whole lot of development and prices are high because there's so no, I think there's a class of people, people in certain areas where there isn't, a good market solution for that. And, you know, in some small town with one pharmacy, one pharmacist, it's not like Walgreens going to say, Hey, we can make $200 a month with these plan B prescriptions. Well, we should set up an entire pharmacy for that. That doesn't, you know, so I I don't necessarily agree with that. I think in an ideal world, yeah, but you need enough of a, a strong user base or consumer base for that to happen. And I think there are plenty of parts of rural America, especially where that's just not the case. And I think we've seen that certainly with the provision of, uh, of abortion services, where in some small towns and so forth, it's, it's, it's a real, it's a real burden. Well, and I, I, I guess that that gets back to the question then, though, is is that a government imposed burden? How how so? Well, I mean, if, if if the idea is you're you're just letting someone follow their own conscience. Right. Is that is that the same as the government saying I we see. are banning? I see what you're uh, saying. We you know, it's it's not that there is a, a governmental entity or a state actor right. saying we are not allowing you to. Yeah. To have this service. It's not it's not directly right. It's not directly doing it, but indirectly, it's certainly imposing right. a burden. But and again, you know, because and, 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 look, you could you could make that argument and people. will. But, you know, I grew up in, you know, there was there was a world before Starbucks. Remember? <laughs> yes, and, I do. And there was there was like, and I can remember uh, when you and I were in D.C. That was actually one of the first times I ever had cappuccino, like you know, fancy coffee. Um, and upon returning then to Northeast Ohio, I was I was you know stunned and, and depressed by the lack <laughs> of fancy coffee available to me. Um, 
And, and it's just because nobody was doing it, yeah. right? But it's not it's not that, you know, the government had said you cannot serve this. It just wasn't popular. Sure. But it became that way. Yeah. And people stepped in and now you, you've got one on every corner. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, I, I love markets. And I think to a certain extent that would happen at least in moderate to larger size uh, areas, but in some small areas, it would create a problem. And I think, you know, neither of us, I don't think are real extremists on this. We understand that there's a balance here. And, and I don't want to tell somebody you have to provide this service if it, you feel like you are, you know, ending a, ending a life, basically. And so this is not an easy question, certainly. And, and I think reasonable people can come at different answers to where that balance should lie, basically. Yeah, and and I'll I'll tell you. Say, I mean, let's put it this way: there are in my job, um, there are cases that I won't take. Right. Uh, there are people who will take those cases. Right. Um, and I think that's you know, again, this is we're talking about someone's civil rights, uh, you know, depending. But um, I, I think I think that's that's just an important. Once you start down that that road of everyone must take this, I think you're going sure. to have fewer people going into that profession. No, I, I get that. And like I said, it's just the question of how do we deal with those situations where there doesn't seem to be a good alternative and there pretty clearly is uh, a, a, a substandard or, or, you know, a greater burden. And that, that's not an easy question to answer, certainly. You would, you would agree with that, right? No, I, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Okay. You know, and there was kind of a related story too. This was later this week. The administration... Uh, proposed to revise another Obama-era rule, this one that included gender identity as a form of sex discrimination. Now, this rule applies to, uh, Obama rule, that is, applies to a provision of the Affordable Care Act that prohibits discrimination based on race, color, national origin, sex, age, or disability. That's pretty standard, just anti-discrimination. the law right? for quite a while, yeah. yeah. So, but what the Obama rule did is it defined if well it defined gender identity first off as a person's internal sense of gender which may be male, female, neither, or a combination of male or female, and which may be different from an individual's sex assigned at birth. And then it also said that well, gender identity is part of sex for the purposes of defining sex discrimination. Now, the Trump administration's position is that the Obama rule goes past what Congress understood as part of sex discrimination when it passed the ACA. And so yes. therefore, essentially, it's executive overreach, basically. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, you say? I, th I think so. And, and what do you think about that position? Well, I think it is executive overreach. And, and look, you can, you can argue the wisdom uh, or lack thereof of including gender identity, but I think it's, it's tough to um, fit that into the box of sex. And, and it's, it's almost like, um, really, I mean, most, so many people, uh, who are in that community and I, I actually know some, um, you know, make, make a big difference between, you know, sex is, is one thing and, and your gender is something else. Um, so it, if, if Congress had meant that or wants to mean that or wants to change it, I think Congress certainly can. Um, I, 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 I don't think the administration, I, I, Elizabeth, I do think the administration would be rewriting, uh, the statute or expanding it uh, beyond what was passed uh, otherwise. Yeah. And, and again, that's not getting into the wisdom of, of, of whether it's a good idea or bad idea. But. Right. Well, on this, I don't think it's going to surprise you, Jay, when I tell you that I agree with you completely. Um, yeah. And we've had this conversation in various, in various guises, various forms, um, where you can be for the underlying idea, but have a problem with 
the implementation, how yeah, how it got there. And so in this case, I absolutely would totally favor, uh, I would contribute to uh, the support, any sort of movement to include gender identity as part of the standard civil rights, anti-discrimination language, you know, but it's not, it's not kind of the traditional understanding yeah. of it. And so even though I am totally for that, and I think that gender discrimination, again, so be clear, but yeah, I think that is executive overreach. And I think once you start to have the executive branch basically redefining words in a way that Congress pretty clearly did not mean for them to be yeah. defined, that just sets a bad precedent for, you know, future presidents doing things. And so, so I am, I am, I am for this proposal, even though I am squarely against gender discrimination. I want to make that entirely clear. Okay. Well, so, here's no. Here's my. Um, I, I do think there is an argument on the merits, though, that that ought to be thrown out there. Um, that should Congress take it up, and that is our, our discrimination law um, as it stands. You know, when we're talking about race, uh, sex, age, so forth. Um, just as a practical standpoint, there are there are objective qualifications. Yeah. If they're, you will, for bringing, inherent for bringing, characteristics, exactly, and, and it's it's uh, one thing for uh, gender is, um, you know, again, it's it's more subjective, uh, and and I think it it presents uh, a difficult problem uh, in enforcement, uh, you know, for 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 a number for a number of reasons, and I think that's that's all the more reason. Why it ought to be, you know, if there's going to be a change, it ought to be legislatively uh, debated and discussed. And, um, you know, how do you, yeah, believe it, believe it or not, Mike, there are people out there uh, who will actually just sue for frivolous stuff just to get money. No. Um, and and <laughs> if if it's one of these, you know, situations, you know, uh, for for uh, 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 that that you know, you're you're either want to sue because you've been dismissed, and you say, well, it's because of my gender. What's your gender? Well, you know, I mean, sort of, um, I, I think there's there's difficulties in in proof there, and I'm not saying there isn't a way to do it. Um, but yeah, it, no, it, I, I I hear what you're saying, and I think that it, you know raises a, a or, or, or again, and, and and to be clear, I'm not saying that that there isn't actual discrimination out there against people who are transgendered or or differently differently gendered. I'm I'm speaking in terms of uh, how does how does one prove that? How do you write the statute? Sure. Yeah. Prevent uh, someone from just claiming anything when it's a purely subjective. Yeah, and I I completely agree. You know, I, I think that uh, uh, certainly I I think that the argument that well you know you're you're either a man or a woman and that sort of thing and that that sort of I just cringe at that because I think it's it's pretty clear that uh, gender can sometimes be a fluid thing, uh, kind of along a spectrum and that sort of thing based on you know a lot of stuff we know and and you know sexual preference and so forth. So it is a difficult kind of nuanced type of topic. And so that's why I think you're right that we do need to have that kind of debate and we need to get people, I think, on record and kind of, and so that's the sort of thing that the legislative purpose is designed to do and not just have this be done through executive fiat, basically. Yep. So there we go. All right. Uh, early this week, Jay, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Kentucky's own, and your Virgi favorite legislator. There you go. Yep. And Virginia Democratic Senator Tim Kaine, so that's bipartisan, um, introduced the Tobacco Free Youth Act, which would raise the national age limit for purchase of tobacco products from 18 to 21 
and would additionally require all states pass their own laws raising the limit to 21, with states that don't do that losing some pretty significant federal funding. Now, again, this is Kentucky and Virginia, two of the three biggest. What do they grow down there, Mike? Yeah, exactly. Tobacco, you know. Now, the legislation is pretty much guaranteed to get a hearing in the Senate. You know, Mitch McConnell, it's one of his priorities. And it's got wide backing, including from the tobacco industry. Now, there are some, though, who argue that the that second provision I mentioned that mandates that states raise their tobacco purchase age to 21, which only 14 states are currently there, that that's was put in there as kind of a backdoor to tobacco lobbyists who will be able to push for legislation that favors them. To give you kind of a for instance on that, Arkansas moved to the age of 21 for tobacco purchases recently, but when they passed their state law, they also included language that prohibited counties and cities from passing their own laws that would further increase the age limit or that would regulate the sale of flavored tobacco products, including menthol and cigarettes. And it's yeah. these, you know, it's the flavors that are really the big draw, especially for kids. I mean, the vast majority of young tobacco users, I think like 80 plus percent, say that their first experience with tobacco came through some sort of a flavored product. So that's kind of the, the gateway if you will. So um, I guess, first off, what do you think about this legislation? I mean, it's pretty clearly, a, you know, obviously it's a, it's a regulation of people's behavior. And I know as a general rule, other things being equal, you're opposed to that, Jay. But what do you think about this one? Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of on the fence in that, um, you know, 18 to 21, uh, that's that was sort of similar to the the debate back in the '80s when uh, Congress uh, did sort of the same sort of thing, mandated that states raise the drinking age to 21 uh, in exchange for highway funds. Right. Um, and and the argument then was, well, you're 18, you can go off and and serve your country and uh, die in some, uh, you know, foreign country, uh, but you can't have a beer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, likewise, uh, this is, this is sort of, well, you're 18 and you can go serve your country. You're old enough to vote. Uh, but you're not allowed, you're not old enough to decide whether or not you should have a cigarette or e-cigarette. Um, so I've, I've got, I got a little bit of an issue there, right? Um, that said, um, I don't think it's, it's an unreasonable regulation and intrusion. Um, you know, you again, you can quibble over the 18 or the 21, but, um, and, and and I think also the saying that it goes back to the states, uh, I, I'm I'm fine with that, and I, I don't I don't necessarily see it as as sinister uh, as a plot as you do, um, because I mean when you're talking about things like uh, uh, prohibiting cities and counties from enacting different uh, regulations, that's that's pretty standard that that most industries want to see, just because otherwise it just becomes so unwieldy. Sure. Um, right. If you've got every every city changing, you know, different laws and, you, you know, you're trying to do business throughout the state, uh, that is that is an impediment. That is a, a serious cost. And that that goes to any industry. Yeah, that's a reasonable point. Yeah. Well, so so I, I don't think that's necessarily, you know, something really sneaky. Um, and also the the funny thing about the, the banning the flavors, we talked about this before. I, I'm also just sort of a. Uh, it's sort of a weird thing of of government saying, "Well, we're we're going to ban this because you like it, uh, because it tastes good, uh, because consumers want it." But particularly um, for kids. Yeah. No, and here, well, here, my my position is that it, is that we should be moving toward a future where 
tobacco usage is just banned full stop. Um, now, that would have to come in degree, certainly, but it is a dangerous drug with essentially no positive purposes, basically. And obviously, you know, people point out that, well, if it were seeking, you know, somewhere seeking FDA approval or something like that for it, obviously it would be denied because it's just a, you know, it's, it has, it's a bad thing, sure. essentially, right? Now, people are hooked on it, but if we can't ban it, and I realize politically we can't, we should at least try to move toward a future where fewer and fewer people use it where eventually use will kind of fade away. And this, this whole vaping thing is just bringing more kids into the fold. And to me, I think age limits are something. And so I'm not saying that, well, this is the bad piece of legislation, but age limits, I don't think are the big thing. It's easy to get around them because the enforcement yeah. just isn't there. Uh, let me give you an example that the biggest retailer of tobacco products in the country, in the United States is Seven Eleven, um, which kind of surprised mm -hmm. me, but it makes sense. Um, in a recent uh, investigation in the state of Oregon, um, investigators found that 25% of 7-Eleven stores were willing to sell to people under the age of 21. And that, that comes after 7-Eleven had a number of previous run-ins with enforcement authorities. They had this court-designated uh, court agreement. Under, eight, under 21 or under 18? Under 21, because Oregon's age is, okay. they're one of the 14 states oh, okay, that's under it. 21. Yeah. They had this agreement with the court where they tightened their policies. They did this extensive, supposedly, employee training and so forth. And still, you know, it's, it, it's not going to be a real impediment to me. The, the age thing doesn't scare the tobacco companies. The thing that scares tobacco companies are putting the limits on the flavors, putting limits on non-face-to-face -face sales, because what the tobacco companies are looking at is, well, where are our future consumers? We need to build sure. that base in the future, and they're doing it through the vaping, through the flavors, through, you know, through online sales and so forth. And so the kind of legislation that scares them is like the Pallone Shalala bill, which was introduced in uh, April of this year, it would require, it would, well, it would prohibit non-face-to-face -face sales. It would prohibit all of these flavors and a number of other things. And that's the kind of thing I think the industry looks at and says, holy cow, we can't have that. That would, that would really cut down on the number of people who smoke or use tobacco yeah. products in the future. And that would be a bad thing for us. So let's get behind this much more innocuous thing to avoid the regulation that would really hurt us, essentially. I mean, because bottom line, Jay, if it's good for the tobacco companies, it's bad for Americans' health, and there's no way around that. I know. I think you're probably right there, but um, I'd also just throw out there what, I mean, it, it, to some extent, in a, a free country, can't, can't we just let people uh, make their own health choices, even if those are bad health choices? Well, and we do to a certain extent, yeah. Uh, but, you know, we don't let people uh, shoot up heroin. We don't let people do a lot of things that we know are, say, particularly addictive and they're going to take sure. them down a dangerous path. And not only that, but of course, individual choices have costs to society. And there's no question that the health costs that are incurred by people who make those individual choices to do certain things are, you know, are born not just by those people by society as a whole to a certain extent oh so, tell me about it so so there you go you know um so so yeah i i am not only for this i would be for much more stringent legislation basically i'm i'm suspicious of everything that big tobacco gets behind just because not because they're evil people running these companies though i mean i 
I have a problem with any company that makes its business by hurting people's health, but essentially that it wouldn't be, I mean, their bottom line is selling a lot of this product that is dangerous to, to humans. That's, that's, that's what my bottom line is too. So there we go. Uh, on that kind of a health note, I guess that we're kind of running a bit long, but uh, before we do go, I should mention to folks that as soon as Jay and I are done recording this show, we're going to be doing our special supporters exclusive show. And I guess on that, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, uh, Julian Assange, who was recently charged with the number of counts of violating the Espionage Act. And that raises, I think, Jay, you would agree, some interesting First Amendment issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That and uh, also about some television shows of our youth, kind of, and what they mean yeah. now and, and some Interesting politics involved in that, Norman Lear and All in the Family and that sort of thing. Well, maybe a little bit before our, our time, but still shows that we were familiar with. All saw them in reruns, certainly. Yeah, exactly. Saw them yeah. in reruns. So if you are a supporter, that should be in your podcast app by the time you hear that. Also, if you're interested in being a supporter and getting all those other supporters-only things, including my upcoming dystopian politics and film thing, just go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash politicsguys. We would appreciate it. And if you've got a question, comment, or just want to get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We are also on Twitter at politics guys and hey if you haven't subscribed to the show yet we would really appreciate it if you did and leave recommendations pass along uh, you know word about the show to your friends neighbors rivals nemesis nemesis yes i guess that'd be the yeah. plural anything that we would really appreciate that all right the exact producer of the politics guys michael baranowski jay carson bruce johnson wilmer moreno and benji fishman today's show is produced by michael baranowski we'll be back with the new show on wednesday we hope you'll join us